dreams uh, have been a source of great interest uh, for probably forever. Um, the Just about every culture um, and throughout uh, recorded history and what we know of prehistory, there seems to have been uh, an idea that dreams convey some sort of meaning, uh, that there's some sort of message um, hidden in dreams. And that message uh, comes from somewhere, and in most cultures, it comes from some sort of other side, from the ancestors, um, from the gods, um, something like that. Not infrequently, very interestingly, the idea is that dreams reveal something of the future, that they foretell something. This is also a very widespread notion, um, as I say, across cultures and across uh, different times. So hold all of that in mind um, as we plunge into the scientific study of dreams. Um, it is to Sigmund Freud that we owe uh, the first serious attempt to identify um, from a scientific point of view uh, what dreaming is all about. And uh, surprisingly, Freud uh, concurred with the popular belief that dreams are meaningful, uh, that dreams convey some sort of hidden message. But for Freud, that hidden message didn't come from the other side in the sense of from some uh, mystical, uh, metaphysical place from the ancestors or from the gods, but rather from within yourself, the other side of yourself, as it were, from your unconscious, the part of your mind of which you are not normally aware. This was Freud's claim. Um, interestingly, when it comes to dreams foretelling the future, Freud's views again had a more than an echo of popular belief in that Freud came to the conclusion that dreams, not, not that they predict the future, but that they convey wishes. In other words, expectations or hopes about the future. That uh, in a nutshell, Freud believed that dreams convey from our innermost unconscious minds, uh, they convey wishes, what we, what we want. Things that we want that we don't normally know that we want. That was Freud's claim. This drawing that you're seeing on the screen, uh, a drawing that Freud uh, produced uh, in his 1900 uh, book, The Interpretation of Dreams. Uh, this was a sketch of the structure of the mind. Freud said in that book, if dreams work the way in which I think they do, uh, then what inferences can we draw about the structure of the mind as a whole? And it's in this sense that Freud's dream theory became the foundation of his entire theory um, of how the mind works. Freud says that normally on the left-hand side of the screen here, uh, normally perceptions enter the mind. They're then registered as we move toward the right 
in various um, various um, uh, categories of memory. The, the, these lines on the left are, are, are memory systems. And then Freud says, ultimately, they are encoded in these unconscious memory systems toward the right-hand side of the screen. Memories, memories uh, eventually uh, uh, are encoded in, in a non-declarative form, in an unconscious form, in a latent form, from where they influence um, our conscious actions. Uh, and on the right-hand side of this diagram, uh, there's what Freud calls the pre-conscious system. In other words, um, what lies immediately uh, behind our conscious actions, these are things that we can draw, bring to mind, uh, and this becomes the basis of our voluntary action. That's Freud's picture of the mind. Now, says Freud, um, when we go to sleep at night, it is this conscious side of the, the right-hand side of the drawing, that's what goes to sleep. Uh, motor action becomes blocked, uh, and we no longer have conscious or pre-conscious thoughts. Uh, and so these unconscious thoughts proceed in a backward direction. This is Freud's claim. They go backwards, uh, back onto the perceptual systems, and therefore we have hallucinations. These are the dreams. That's Freud's claim about how dreams arise. He says normally our unconscious thoughts are filtered through our pre-conscious, uh, uh, realistic mind um, and influence our conscious and voluntary actions. But since our realistic, um, uh, 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 reality-oriented uh, uh, planning and, th and thinking uh, logical part of the mind has gone to sleep, uh, says Freud, these unconscious thoughts um, go backwards onto these perceptual systems where you they, they where they where they are where there's an attempt to fulfill them um in in an hallucinatory fashion these are very big claims uh, on the basis of uh, remember a method uh, that i just described to you which is which is really quite quite shaky um when it comes to when it comes to science um, the great popper himself uh, said so now, uh, I told you I want to say a little bit more about this theory, so I'm now going to elaborate. Freud said that the pre-conscious system normally senses, uh, it normally uh, keeps from our awareness uh, these repressed, heartfelt, embarrassing, childish uh, wishes and urges. So we're not normally aware uh, of these things because they're inhibited by the pre-conscious system. Freud said, because the pre-conscious system goes to sleep at night, um, the, the unconscious wishes are released from inhibition. And he said that they, if, 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 if it were not for dreams, uh, by, by means of which uh, they are deflected backwards, uh, back onto the perceptual system, these wishes uh, now uh, are represented in the harmless form of an hallucination. If it were not for that, they would move toward action uh, and wake us up because they're no longer inhibited by this system. So Freud says it's, it's, it's in order to not wake us up that we have dreams. We fulfill our wishes or attempt to fulfill our wishes in our dreams um, in order to protect sleep. We, we discharge these, uh, these uh, 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 heartfelt drives um, in virtual reality, 
um, in hallucinatory form in our dreams, uh, so that we do not have to uh, enact them uh, in the in the real outside world. Um, because remember, they're released from inhibition. They're no longer inhibited by the pre-conscious system which has gone to sleep. Um, so uh, the important point that I'm wanting to emphasize here is that Freud says that the dream, therefore, is a sleep protective measure. Dreams protect sleep, said Freud. So he actually made two theoretical claims. Um, well, he made three. The one is that dreams represent our most heartfelt hidden desires. Secondly, uh, that they do so um, in order, uh, in an hallucinatory form, that's the second claim, you know, by, by means of this backward projection onto our perceptual systems. And thirdly, and most importantly, that all of this uh, is for the purposes of protecting sleep. Those are the claims. Uh, there's, in fact, even a fourth claim, which is implicit in what I've said earlier, uh, which is that the dream, the dream is not, uh, does not directly uh, express the wish. You have to infer it. Uh, you have to reconstruct it uh, from the thoughts of the patient. Um, this is because, and this is the, the fourth part, uh, this is because, says Freud, uh, the dreams, uh, if they were to directly represent your most heartfelt, uh, infantile, uh, embarrassing, uh, repressed desires, uh, then this too would be alarming and would wake you up. Uh, therefore, uh, they are disguised. Uh, th therefore, they are censored uh, a little bit uh, in a much more rough and ready way than our normal waking thoughts are. But nevertheless, there is a censorship in our dreams which disguises and distorts these hidden wishes. Um, and it was that, I remind you, that Popper uh, found so objectionable uh, because there's no way, um, uh, if, because this requires the analyst to interpret the dream, to find the hidden meaning. Um, you know, Popper, Popper correctly says this does not lead to falsifiable predictions. It came, uh, I imagine, as a great relief uh, when uh, this thing that I've now got on the screen, um, when this, this uh, objective method uh, of studying what goes on during sleep became available. This method uh, is called the electroencephalogram, uh, the EEG. Uh, the EEG measures levels of brain arousal electronically. It measures because the electrical, the neurons con uh, communicate with each other uh, by means of uh, electrical discharges. Um, it's possible to measure with the EEG what level of electrical activity there is going on uh, within the brain. And that's what this axis measures, yeah, the, the level of brain arousal. This is a high level of brain arousal, and this is a lower and a lower and a lower level. On this axis here, we have time, eight hours of time. Two physiologists applied this method. They, their names were Azarinsky and Kleitman. Uh, they were in Chicago. They applied this method, EEG, um, to the study of sleep uh, in the early 1950s. And they predicted, remember, Popper requires us to make falsifiable predictions. Uh, they predicted that as you fall asleep, so your brain waves will slow down. In other words, uh, there, will be, there will be a lower level um, of brain arousal as we fall asleep. Um, as uh, arousal as measured by the EEG. And that's exactly what was observed. 
as Zerinsky and Kleitman observed, that as we fall asleep, so our level of brain arousal decreases. The, the level of electrical activity in the brain uh, des descends down to this deep, slow wave sleep, it's called, a very slow um, brain waves. The surprise for Azarinsky and Kleitman, having confirmed that prediction, was what happens next. Uh, after 90 minutes, uh, the brain waves speed up again. And then they slow down again. And then after 90 minutes, they speed up again. And so on in regular cycles throughout the night. So what they accidentally discovered uh, was this paradoxical form of sleep uh, where um, although you are in repose and deeply asleep, uh, nevertheless, your brain uh, boots up uh, and, and reactivates in regular cycles every 90 minutes. Um, they initially called this paradoxical sleep uh, for the reason that it is paradoxical that the brain should be aroused during sleep. And they not unreasonably uh, came to the idea that this paradoxical physiological arousal uh, might be the equivalent of the paradoxical psychological uh, events of sleep. Um, the paradox here being that in the unconsciousness of sleep, you have conscious experiences. Uh, the unconsciousness of sleep is punctuated uh, by intensely conscious mental activity, uh, the mental activity that we call dreaming. So uh, as Zerinsky and Kleitman uh, hypothesized that the physiological state of brain arousal that they discovered might be uh, the equivalent of the psychological uh, mental arousal that we call dreams. So they predicted, here's another experiment, they predicted that if you wake people up during this paradoxical arousal state during sleep, that you will get dream reports. And if you wake them up in the uh, slow wave sleep, uh, demarcated by red over here, then you will not get dream reports. Same applies here. Whoops, sorry, skip the slide. Um, so they, they then set up an experiment together with um, a, a young man named William Dement, rather an unfortunate name for a mental scientist. Um, and Dement uh, confirmed this prediction. Uh, when he woke uh, sleeping uh, subjects up during paradoxical sleep, 90% uh, of awakenings were accompanied by dream reports. And when he woke them up from slow wave sleep, uh, only 10% or less of awakenings were accompanied by dream reports. So that's a very strong confirmation um, of, the, uh, of, the, uh, of the theory, a strong confirmation of the prediction arising from the theory uh, that this uh, aroused brain state that happens every 90 minutes during sleep um, is the physiological equivalent of the psychological state of dreaming. And from that moment onwards, uh, I'm talking about 1955, from that moment onwards, uh, dreaming uh, and this physiological state were considered to be equivalent, uh, to be, to be the, the objective physiological state uh, uh, was a objective biological marker of the presence of the subjective psychological state of dreams. Um, and that's very important because now that we have an objective marker of when 
somebody is dreaming, uh, we have the opportunity of um, investigating what the mechanisms are that lie behind those objective events, those brain events, those physiological events. And this was uh, an enormous relief, as you can imagine, uh, as I said earlier, uh, for American uh, psychiatry and mental science as a whole. We could move beyond this uh, subjective saying whatever comes into your mind kind of thing and start doing proper science. Um, now, uh, this state that used to be called paradoxical sleep that I've been talking about, the state of brain arousal, um, it was renamed REM sleep or rapid eye movement sleep because one of the uh, other features of what happens during REM sleep, during this phase of sleep, uh, is not only that the brain waves uh, become faster um, and more irregular, um, it's also that uh, your eyes dart about, and this is very easy to see, it, rapid eye movements. Um, and so this, this, uh, uh, this became uh, the, the, the name for this type of sleep, REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep. And the slow wave type of sleep became known as non-REM sleep, NREM sleep. Um, there are other things that happen during REM sleep. Uh, very interestingly, your genitals become engorged. Um, but uh, uh, let's not talk about that. Uh, the, the main way in which we measure REM sleep these days is we look at the brain waves uh, and we look at the eye movements and we look at muscle tone because, um, interestingly, your muscles below the neck uh, become completely uh, flaccid, temporarily paralyzed, uh, making it impossible for you to enact uh, whatever it is that's going on inside of you um, during uh, this phase of sleep. Um, I told you that this was a great breakthrough because it made it possible for us to investigate objectively uh, the mechanisms lying behind this physiological state uh, that you can study um, using normal scientific methods. Uh, and uh, what made this all the more uh, 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 viable was the fact that REM sleep does not occur only in human beings. It occurs in all mammals. Um, and why that's important is because, unfortunately for those other mammals, uh, it was considered ethical to uh, poke about in their brains, snip away at bits uh, of their brains, not to put too fine a point on it, uh, to see which bit uh, causes the REM sleep. Uh, because the part that causes REM sleep um, is the part that causes dreaming. And so if we can identify objectively the brain basis of REM sleep, then we will have um, a, a, a less embarrassing uh, handle on what it is that causes us to dream, a, less a methodologically less embarrassing uh, grip on it uh, is what I mean. And so this is what we did. Uh, when I say we, I mean this is what neuroscientists did. Uh, following uh, Dement's great discovery in 1955, um, there was a race to discover which part of the brain, uh, when removed, uh, leads to a loss of REM sleep. And the scientist who led the charge was Michel Jouvet. And what he did in cat brains, what I'm showing you on the screen is a human brain, but uh, it looks very similar to a cat brain. And what Jouvet did was he made progressively deeper slices into the brain uh, to see at what level, uh, how deep must he go uh, in order to obliterate REM sleep. He eventually got this deep. He made a cut over here 
uh, at the top of the brain stem, separating the whole of the forebrain, uh, the, the, the big gray uh, structure uh, that fills out our craniums, uh, our evolutionary pride and joy in us humans, the thing that sets us apart from all the other mammals, we've got so much cortex. Um, what, what Juve showed was you can remove the cortex entirely from the brainstem, um, thereby disconnecting the brainstem from the organ of the mind, uh, this, this, um, the, the, the part of the brain that, that, that represents memories and perceptions and cognitions of all kinds. Um, you can remove this whole organ of the mind um, and, re and retain only a brain stem, very primitive structure just above the spinal cord, and still REM sleep persists uh, in the unfortunate cats that he was doing this to. REM sleep persisted, uh, carried on like clockwork uh, with the same regularity, um, even, even when all they had was an active uh, functioning brain stem. Jouvet found it was only once he got right down to the level of the pons, uh, which I'm indicating with my, with my pointer now, it was only once he got right down to this level um, that REM sleep stopped. That showed that REM sleep was generated at this level of the brain. That was in 1965 that Jouvet reported this. Um, he then handed over the baton to his student, Alan Hobson, who was able to identify exactly which neurons uh, in this part of the brainstem switch REM sleep on and off. He found that there were a group of neurons here uh, in what's called the mesopontine tegmentum. These neurons release a neurotransmitter in the forebrain called acetylcholine. Uh, he showed that these cells fire rapidly as you enter REM sleep and activate the forebrain. Uh, in all the species that he studied. He focused mainly on rats, uh, did, did uh, Hobson. And simultaneously, there are two other groups of cells here. I won't bother you with the technical details, but there are two other groups of cells also in the ponds, uh, which stop firing as we enter REM sleep. So what Hobson showed was there's a simple switch. Um, it's uh, every 90 minutes in the human brain, uh, these these cholinergic cells here switch on, um, and these other cells down here switch off. Uh, so that's the mechanism of dreaming. A simple switch, on, off, on, off, click, clock. Um, and it's this switch is in a level of the brain way below the organ of the mind. And what is more, it happens every 90 minutes, like clockwork. So uh, Hobson concluded that the Freudian theory of dreams must be completely wrong. There's, there's no wishes going on down here. There are no motivations going on down here. Uh, acetylcholine is not a motivational uh, uh, hormone or, 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 or neurotransmitter or, or neuromodulator. Um, it is, as Hobson said, motivationally neutral. Um, and it switches on and off like clockwork. Uh, and it activates the organ of the mind, it activates the cortex, uh, thereby generating random images. Um, the things that we experience in our dreams, uh, said Hobson, uh, are the forebrain making, and I'm quoting him, making the best of a bad job. Um, it is just being activated. It's not meaningful activity. It's random arousal of the forebrain. And all that the cortex can do is join the dots. 
So it joins all the uh, perceptual and memory uh, and other uh, uh, cognitive uh, mechanisms that are randomly activated uh, and, and, and creates an episode, creates an experience out of it, um, which, is, um, which is what we dream. Um, and uh, uh, as I said, Hobson calls that making the best of a bad job. Uh, that's what the forebrain does. Uh, I predicted that if, if what the cortex is doing um, is joining the dots, the randomly activated uh, dots, as it were, um, in the cortex, then damage to different parts of the cortex should uh, have differential effects on the content of dreams. Damage to the visual cortex might result in non-visual dreams, I predicted. Uh, damage to the somatosensory cortex, um, which leads to um, hemianesthesia and hemiplegia, paralysis of one side of the body, uh, should have us moving uh, in our dreams with only one half of our bodies. Um, damage to the language cortex uh, should result in nonverbal dreams and so on. Um, all of these predictions, I want to tell you, were disconfirmed. None of that happens. It was a great surprise to me. The only one of my predictions which, which was, in fact, confirmed, I, I, I predicted that the prefrontal cortex, this part of the brain, uh, which sets human beings apart from chimpanzees and other primates, we have very highly developed prefrontal cortex. Um, this part of the brain is in charge, as it were. It's the executive control center of the mind. Um, since we do not seem to be in charge of what happens in our dreams, I predicted that damage here would have no effect on dreams. I predicted that this part of the brain does not participate in dreaming. And that proves to be correct. Damage to this part of the brain um, has no effect on dreams. Uh, blind raters, that is to say, people who do not know whether they're looking at the dreams of a patient with no frontal lobes or the dreams of you and me, uh, they are unable to distinguish the dreams from each other. That was the one and only of my predictions that was confirmed in this study that I began in 1985 um, and ended 10 years later. Uh, it took me 10 years to do the study because I wasn't studying rats and cats. I was studying human beings because I needed dream reports. I needed to see how the content of dreams was altered by damage to different parts of the brain. So this slide here, uh, the dark blue area, corresponds to the area of the brain that we're talking about, the prefrontal cortex. Damage here has no effect on dreams. Um, but what I found, um, the other things I found were really um, uh, equally interesting, if not a lot more so. And these other findings were surprises. The first uh, surprise is indicated by this light blue area uh, in the top left uh, uh, image on the screen. This is the mesopontine tegmentum. This is the part of the brain uh, that is responsible for generating REM sleep, the part of the brain that Juve and even more precisely Hobson had identified as the dream generator. It's here, this area here. Now, what I found was that damage here, although it does lead to a loss of REM sleep in human beings, just as it does in rats and cats, uh, it does not lead to a loss of dreaming. That these patients, uh, I had 18 of them with damage in this part of the brain. Uh, by the way, I studied uh, 361 patients. 18 of them had damage here, and they all reported ongoing dreams. Um, and even if you wake these patients up during um, the middle of the night 
uh, you, you get no dream, you get um, uh, no REM, but you do get dream reports. So this was a really shocking surprise because the ABCs of behavioral neuroscience uh, state that if a part of the brain is responsible for a particular mental function, then loss of that part of the brain should lead to a loss of that mental function. Uh, but what I found was it applies to, uh, to REM sleep. You have a loss of REM sleep, but you do not have a loss of dreams. That means on the ABCs that I spoke of, that this part of the brain cannot be the part that's responsible for dreaming, uh, that there is in fact a dissociation between REM sleep and dreams, uh, that although uh, REM sleep is lost with damage here in all species, um, we can determine in human beings that dreaming is not lost. This suggests that dreaming and REM sleep are not the same thing. Uh, this was even more strongly confirmed uh, by virtue of the fact that I found that damage here um, in what's called the parieto-occipital junction, this, this area of the brain, um, that damage here to this part of the brain which is responsible for mental imagery, um, that damage here leads to a loss of dreaming, which is not surprising because if you can't generate a mental image, uh, how can you generate a dream? But these patients continue to have REM sleep. That's what we call a double dissociation of function. In other words, damage here leads to a loss of REM sleep with a preservation of dreaming, and damage here to these brown areas leads to a loss of dreaming, but preservation of REM sleep. So dreaming and REM sleep were doubly dissociable. Even more interesting, and this is the last of the several findings that uh, I uh, made, but I won't report them all, uh, it was that damage in this area marked in red. Red means important. Uh, damage to this part of the brain, um, which I'll show you on this slide, uh, it's the white matter underneath the cortex here on both sides. Damage deep inside of the, of the forebrain um, underneath the cortex over here on both sides, this too leads to a loss of dreaming with preservation of REM sleep. So my main focus after that finding was what is this part of the brain doing? Uh, this part marked in red, because clearly this is crucial for dreaming. Unlike the brown area where there's no surprise, if you can't generate mental imagery, you can't generate dreams. Um, it wasn't clear at all why damage here should lead to a loss of dreaming. It wasn't clear what this part of the brain is doing uh, that's so important for dreaming, because it is clearly doing something really important for dreaming, something essential for dreaming, because damage here leads to a loss of dreams. Freud, with those very basic method of free association, uh, intuited that somewhere behind the scenes, uh, there's, a, there's a massive motivational urge um, a positive, um, a wishful desire uh, activated in the middle of sleep. I mean, it's really quite remarkable that he was that he was able to uh, 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 intuit this uh, from the from the you know the the noisy psychological data that he used. But it really does seem that this is what's going on. Dreams are motivated mental states. Uh, the emotional brain uh, is switched on intensely uh, during dreaming sleep. It's disinhibited. The normal uh, executive controls do not apply. Uh, and uh, then we have an hallucinatory experience. Uh, it really does seem Freud was roughly on the right track. Uh, and uh, when you come to a direct test uh, of his theory uh, that the whole purpose of dreaming um, is to protect sleep, 
bearing in mind that we've been in the embarrassing position in sleep science um, until uh, this study uh, of not knowing why we dream. We've never been able to uh, ascertain a biological function for dreaming. And we dream a lot. We spend 20% of our sleeping hours dreaming. Um, and we've never known why. So um, whatever else dreams are for, uh, because I don't want to claim that uh, this is the last word uh, on the matter, but whatever, whatever else dreams are for, um, empirically um, in, this, in this little and ongoing study. Uh, I presented these findings when I first uh, concluded the pilot study before I uh, began the, the big study. I presented it to a group of colleagues about a year and a half ago. Um, and one of the colleagues in the audience uh, had her little daughter with her, who was five years old. Um, so her daughter listened to my lecture um, in the early evening. Um, and then uh, her mother, my colleague, uh, asked the little girl, uh, did you understand what the professor was talking about? Uh, because uh, she was uh, concerned, you know, that she'd subjected her poor little five-year-old daughter to listening to a lecture not that different from the one that I've just given you. And the little girl said, yes, she did. So um, her mother asked her to explain what the talk was about. And I'll now show you the child's explanation uh, so that you can get um, as simple uh, a summary statement as it is possible to have uh, of what I've just told you. This is what the little girl drew. On the 11th of June uh, 2020, which is when I gave the lecture, uh, she made this drawing for her mother and she wrote, why do we dream? And she answered, so we can have a good night's sleep, uh, and then did this drawing. So that's a, a summary of what I've just said to you. Um, why do we dream? Well, whatever other reason it is, uh, one that we've demonstrated empirically is that we dream uh, in order to have a good night's sleep. Dreams protect sleep, whatever else they do. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the show. If you'd like to hear the full version, you can do so with a Weekend University Premium Membership. This gets you access to our master library of over 230 talks and interviews with the world's leading psychologists, professors, and authors, as well as transcripts, CPD certification, quizzes, and unlimited access to the recordings from our annual conferences. For more information, please go to theweekenduniversity.com forward slash membership.